Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be honest, I really do need your help to be able to keep this show going. To support the podcast's eight monthly episodes starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you're already a patron, I see you and I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. If we think about how natural processes work, and this would be from the health of soils through the diversity of plants, through wild and domestic animals, through to us, to human beings, as linked in with that, that's a way to really cut costs. Nature is low-cost operator. That was Fred Provenza, a behavioral ecologist and the author of Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. He's also the co-founder of BEHAVE, a research and outreach program that seeks to understand the principles of animal behavior. This is part one of a two-part conversation, so stay tuned as we're about to first explore how we've largely become disconnected from the inherent wisdom of our palates and bodies. What we can learn from behavioral ecology to better understand what it means to reconnect with our nourish sense and eat for our health and the health of our ecosystems and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I'm going to go back and then go forward. When I ended up at Utah State University as a graduate student, one of the things that really interested me was a program they had that was using domestic animals to improve habitat for wildlife species of all different sorts. Hmm. And I thought, this is a beautiful thing, because at, at when I was at Colorado State, there was this feeling amongst we wildlife folks that... Ranching and farming was bad for landscapes, and there were reasons that 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 feeling came about. The overuse and the abuse of rangelands that took place during the the late 1800s, early part of the 1900s. So I thought this is really this is really a neat thing. Well, then went to graduate school and became a faculty member and was incredibly interested in behavior. Why do animals do what they do? Not what do they do. I'd been observing what animals did for for many, many years. What do they eat? Where do they go? We were really interested in trying to understand why do they do that? And I think if I summarize what came out of all that research very briefly, it's simply that learning is such a fundamental part of everything that all creatures do, not just human beings. And up until that time, there was, I think, a really quite rigid view that genes are what drive everything. Genes are genes are destiny. And our work was just showing over and over and over again the many, many ways that learning and social relationships and culture, animals have cultures, And those cultures start and young animals become a part of that culture, starting literally in the womb as we were showing these influences. And so that that's really what we had been working on for 25 or 30 years. And then I ended up with cancer. I was diagnosed with cancer 
And the core people that I had worked with and I had always talked about the the implications of this for the way that we manage landscapes, but we had been so busy doing research and publishing that research in scientific journals, we simply didn't have the time to try to engage broader audience. Well, when I got cancer, we sat down after I had been in the hospital and we decided, you know, if we don't get this information out to people more generally within the U.S. and globally, it may never get out. If I die of cancer, that's it, because the program will be done for. So we started applying for grants. We got a $4.5 million grant mm. that was what funded the BEHAVE program over a 10-year period. And that was actually so fortunate for us to have that that as a way to, to finish the program over that 10-year period. What we did was to engage people from around the U.S. initially, we needed to have a, quote, advisory board, and we put that together. We thought, who are the most innovative farmers and ranchers and land management people we know? We want them on our advisory board. And so we identified them from around the U.S. And that first meeting, we talked about what the research that we'd been doing. It was a two-day meeting. <clears throat> Boy, people were on board. Mm. And so each year we would meet <clears throat> with our quote advisory board. I was doing so many talks and workshops during those days. When I saw people who I really lit up, I'd invite them to our advisory board meeting. So by the end, we had roughly 200, 250 people on wow. our advisory board that were just meeting each year. And we would we would talk about the research that we were doing. And then they would talk about their needs. So it wasn't like we were saying, we, you need this kind of research done. We were listening to what they were saying they needed. And then we were having graduate students work with people on the ground. Oh, it was a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous program in that sense, because we were engaging real live people on real live landscapes with issues they had doing really nice science, but at the same time, science that was very, very applicable to, to issues of the day. And so that, that was the essence of BEHAVE. And then we ended up with people from all over the world participating in BEHAVE. And what was it specifically that you, you felt like you wanted to translate from your research into real life practices? On the one level, it was this whole idea that animals are learning behaviors and so we can participate in that and we can use that to manage for the health of, of landscapes ecologically. But also then that if we think about how natural processes work, and this would be from the health of soils through the diversity of plants, through wild and domestic animals, through to us, to human beings as linked in with that, that's a way to really cut costs. Nature is low cost operator. And so that was so much the message in the workshops I was doing and the talks that I was giving that these are ways to cut costs. And that dovetailed nicely with what other people were doing, including really innovative producers who were a part of this program were saying, look, you know, the costs are what's killing us. The costs of uh, related to all these inputs what we need to do is get out from under these costs. And this was a way then to do that. So there was an ecological component. Then there was this strong economic component. Then there was a strong social cultural part of things that really we come from the land. We're a part of the land. We've really 
broken our linkages as, as peoples with landscapes. I often think of what Aldo Leopold wrote, and I won't have this exactly right, but the essence, you know, he said there's spirit, two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is to think that food comes from the grocer, the other that heat comes from the furnace. Mm. And he said to avoid the first danger, grow gardens. To avoid the second danger, cut your own wood and let it warm your warm your soul by your fire during the, the winter time. I think those kind of linkages, and I think that so much nowadays, we can't all be farmers and ranchers. And in fact, that's a very small percentage of the population in, in the U.S. at least. But we all, we don't all, but many of us own little pieces of ground. For instance, my wife Sue and I own an acre and a half here in Ennis, Montana. Own it, quote, own. We never own anything, but we're on this acre (laughs) and a half. And when we bought it, it was just trashed. It It was bare soil. And if you were to look at it now, the native plants have come back. And so there's no input on native plants. They're there. And all the different flowering plants that come and go from season to season and the grasses that come and go and produce all their seeds. And then we put in herbal, medicinal, vegetable gardens throughout the place. We have a nice little greenhouse that allows us to grow greens and tomatoes and whatever from March through October that we we pick fresh each day. We're going to be allowed here now on our little place to, to get bees and to get some chickens all those things to me are very grounding and centering. And uh, the years I spent on the ranch really, really brought that home to me. I was not not a, quote, city kid because the little town I grew up in wasn't really a city. But I didn't have that experience. And when I got out there, I remember I felt just like year as we went through the seasons from the spring of planting to the summer of growing, to the fall of harvesting, and then the animals from becoming pregnant in the fall, having their their calves and their lambs and their kids in the spring. It was just so grounding. So I used to think all the time, I don't know what an ant feels like, but I feel like a little ant here, you know, just to put it on things. It was And I I think Aldo Leopold is right that when we lose that as a society, and and many of the Native Americans echo those same sentiments in beautiful, beautiful ways, that when you lose that contact with nature, it's uh, the end of living and the beginning of survival, huh? Mm. Your research has largely been founded on what you call the wisdom of the body, specifically in part that palatability is more than a matter of taste, because there's wisdom in taste beyond personal preferences if we really reconnect with nature and what palatability means. Can you share some of what you found when observing the behaviors of herbivores in your work? Yes, absolutely. And there are really, I think, if you view it as a stool with three legs, there are three legs that are really the essence of what it means to have nutritional wisdom. And the one that we studied, well, we studied all three of them. So let me start with one. 
And that's the one that I think none of us ever think about. I never did until we did this research. And it literally, literally stopped me in my tracks when we were doing these first studies on this. And it's this idea that we talk about as feedback. And let me try to explain that. I often ask people, where does food go? When we eat the food, where does food go? And it oftentimes catches people by surprise because it's not something we think about. Ultimately, though, where the food goes is to cells, to the trillion cells that make up our body. And feedback is a way that cells and organ systems can influence our liking for the flavors of foods as a function of what those cells and organ systems need. It's an amazingly intricate, powerful system that simply it's, it's, you know, to use a, it's biochemically mediated. So you have these compounds that are in food, these so-called primary sec compounds, which, you know, what we think of as energy, protein, vitamins, minerals, and so forth. And then this vast, vast array of so-called secondary compounds that plants produce. And these are in broad classes, alkaloids, terpenoids, phenolics. We don't need to get lost in the detail of that, but just to, to realize there are tens of thousands of these and they're very, very important. Well, that's what the cell is experiencing. And at the capillary level, cells are actually foraging. That's the way I like to think about it. But they can only forage on what's coming in that capillary. If we think of a fish in a stream, the analogy I used in, a, in the book. But in this case, the cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, can actually, through feedback, alter our liking for the flavors of foods as a function of need. So we did a tremendous, tremendous amount of very carefully controlled studies with cattle, sheep, goats over the years to show the importance of that and how complex that actually is. So that's one leg of the stool. And that's still functioning. You know, I'm going to be giving a talk in Innsbruck here next week at a conference on self-medication. And one of the, the talks they asked me to give is after 10,000 years, can domestic animals still self-medicate? Well, they can. That's built into the body, and domestication is not going to change that. But what's the second leg of the stool that's so important in all of this and that we've really mucked it up for human food systems and for the animals in our care has to do with the availability of alternative foods. If you have wholesome alternatives available, for domestic animals, that to me means a diverse array of different kind of plants that allow them to meet their needs for nutrients, for medicines, to be able to uh, meet all the needs of the body. For we humans nowadays, I think it's, it's trying however we can to access wholesome kinds of foods that are fresh, fresh off the vine if we can get it, you know, fruits and produce. That's where growing our own is such a wonderful thing or being able to support farmers markets or however we do that. Or, you know, this, many stores have are trying, trying to do, do a good job on that. And then from the standpoint of meat, if people like to eat meat as a part of their diet, getting the best kind of meats, meats that a person can buy. My wife and I are very much now support people who produce grass fed kind of meat because we feel that the 
what I would call the biochemical richness of that meat is much greater than for animals that come from, from feedlots. The diversity of different plants that are in the diets of animals that, that are eating out on and finished on grass fed that we think has advantages. But, but anyway, the idea is that second leg of the stool is that the availability of alternatives is really, really critical. The third leg of the stool of nutritional wisdom is the social cultural linkages. And to, to realize that starting in the womb, we're already starting to experience the diet that mother is eating. The fetal taste system is fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. So whatever mom's eating, the flavors of that is getting into her amnionic fluid. And we're already starting to become familiar with what's a, whole, quote, wholesome diet. You know, mm -hmm. but if mom's eating processed foods, we're becoming familiar with that, too. And that's setting us up already for metabolic syndrome and a whole bunch of other ailments uh, that obesity, diabetes, all those kinds of things. But after birth, as soon as we're, we're born, the flavors of foods mom's eating, if, if mom is, is nursing the child, whether that's a human or a calf or a, or a lamb or whatever, the flavors of the foods that she's eating are getting into her milk, more cues. And then mother becomes a model once young animals start to eat. And that was so easy to demonstrate over and over and over again that not only what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, habitat selection, what's a predator, what's not a predator, all these things are being learned. But from a food standpoint, that's the third leg of the stool. And there's no way to overstate how important that leg is. It Also, too, genes are being expressed as a function of the experiences we have, this whole field of epigenetics. And so that also ties in with these transgenerational linkages and mother as a, as a model. So th those are the things that we study. Those are the three legs to the stool. And uh, it may seem crazy for me to say this, but I ended up teaching two-week short courses with the help of others. But you know, we'd spend two weeks talking about these things, illustrating them with real live animals. And so I'm just touching the, what I'm trying to say, I'm touching the tip of the iceberg here. It, it goes down, down, down and out, out, out in terms of breadth and depth of how all this works. Mm. And it really, really gets you thinking. But that, that's the essence of, of the whole deal. Those three legs to the stool. And as you say, nobody has to tell a wild plant, bacteria, insect, fish, bird, or mammal what to eat to sustain their health, recover from disease, how to develop and reproduce. So why is it that we as humans have become disconnected from the meaning of our palatability? Because it seems like we've created a culture of info overload, confusion, fads, and sometimes ideologies around what we need to eat to be well that ironically may be leading us to more illness. How did this all happen? Amen to everything you say. And I, <laughs> I don't, I know, I know neither one of us is meaning this. Uh, I don't think as, as just kind of a blatant critique of everyone out there who, who went down these different paths. Uh, you know, you can you can trace, and I do throughout the book, different ways that some of these these things evolved. And then, but in some cases, it is actually malicious. What's happened? It was uh, with knowing ill effects of uh, sugar, for instance. That's been well documented, talked about in many books about the knowledge of what that does. Tobacco's another example, and on and on. But 
the point that you raised that that was the most interesting one of the most interesting to me has to do the power with what the power of what we come to believe and the info overload i was just thinking that this morning of all the day in day out just be we're told this is good that's bad you shouldn't do this you should do that in terms of foods i'm talking now and then you know in another year or two that gets reversed and then it gets reversed again and again i'm not not trying to be the big critic but what i am trying to weave back to that you brought up i think is so important is trying to figure out for yourself trying to go into your own wisdom body both physically and spiritually but for that matter far as i'm concerned but trying to go at, and figure out what it is that you that you are what it is that you really in terms of foods what is it that your body's telling you and that's where the wholesome foods become so critical because if you get the processed foods in there that system that hijacks the system and we showed that over and over again where we'd feed animals absolutely worthless food and follow that with a blast of energy, which would be like the high fructose corn syrup or the sugar or whatever. And animals will eat anything when you do that. And that's basically what we do. So the processed foods have to be out of there. But if you get on wholesome foods and then start paying attention to your body and even experimenting with your own body to figure out what is it that really works for me, I think that's a sound of advice as trying to follow. There's just so much that comes out. I think it can be so become so confusing. And then, you know, it influences the responses of our body at a very basic physiological level. I, I was amazed as I started reading the literature on that, on human beings, how you can offer them exactly the same food and tell them, you know, I'm thinking now of a study they did with steak, and it, it was exactly the same meat. But they they said, this meat comes from a factory farm, and when they offered that to people, they didn't like it. Tastes greasy, tastes terrible. This came from a really nice organic farm. Oh, we love the flavor of it. And it's the same piece of meat. And there's so many variations on that theme that have been conducted, including with sensitivity to gluten. And here again, I'm not saying that there are people that are sensitive to gluten there are but the power of what we believe influences us physiologically to where many people who really aren't sensitive to gluten but think they are respond adversely when they eat food that they believe contains gluten even if it doesn't so you know there's been so many studies that and I, I'm not saying I'm any different but it shows how powerful beliefs come to be I ended that one chapter of the book with a book by a lady named Anita. The title of the book was Dying to Be Me. And it was just a perfect way to end that part of the book on the power of beliefs to adversely affect her health to the point where she got cancer, had a... Uh, a near-death experience. It's, it's a powerful book, but it, it just illustrates how in all facets of our life, the power of beliefs. And then you start to think, well, who am I actually? You know, what is it that I, I believe? When you really think carefully about that and you think starting in utero, all that's been influenced. I think that's a challenge indeed to figure that out. I was just 
seeing something yesterday where the Native Americans would go for a week when they were young, all alone, out in the woods, on the vision quest for who am I? And they would come back and they would say, this is who I am. Mm. I think that's not a trivial thing, both physically and spiritually nowadays, to to try to figure out who am I actually amidst all of the the chatter and like you said, the, the information overload that's that's just beyond belief. There's seemingly this idea called nutritionism happening right now in that we're becoming too obsessed with the level of this vitamin or this nutrient in this food compared to that one and so forth. That's maybe making us myopic and not seeing that whole foods are always more than the sum of their parts because of the synergies that exist in whole foods. So for example, an apple can't be replaced with supplements that make up the exact same levels of nutrients in the apple and maybe along with some artificial apple flavorings. So when we crave an apple and end up drinking an artificially flavored apple juice, that's not really giving our body what what it really needs. So when trying to understand how to eat in ways that can sustain our health and allow us to thrive, what can your research on behavioral ecology teach us about what it means to eat healthily and to take it another step further, what it means to eat sustainably within our landscapes? Well, again, amen to everything that you just said there. We are... Here in the U.S. especially, we've become obsessed with the parts rather than the whole. And so, you know, how much vitamin C is in this? How much potassium? Where are you getting this and that and the other thing? When in reality, it's about synergies. And the synergies are so complex, they're beyond our ability to study those things. And that's not to say that individual vitamins and minerals aren't important, but it's the synergies that count. One of the more interesting papers I read as I was uh, writing the book was titled Food Not Nutrient is the Basic Unit in Nutrition. And they just made a marvelous case for what we're talking about. And the more you focus on very detailed individual kind of things, for instance, we just wrote a, a review paper. The title was, Is Grass-Fed Meat and Dairy Better for Human and Environmental Health? And we, we started out one of the sections talking about omega-3 fatty acids and how the more you focus just on omega-3s and especially in supplemental form, the effect goes away. There's really not that much evidence that that taken as a supplement that matters do omega-3s matter? Of course they do, but it's in synergy in whole foods. And this paper just made a marvelous case for, for that part of things. So that that first part of your question, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's certainly, it's about synergies. We were showing that over and over and over again in our research. Uh, complementarities and synergies even sequences. It was amazing to see how how animals would mix their diets in different ways to meet their needs and to pick apart some of the, the, the synergies that were underlined by what we would call, you know, if you eat this food before that food, it has a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And there was some of that in the in for, for us as well, especially related to different courses of a meal and uh, Where I was finding this was in the literature on diabetes and what would spike glucose and insulin and sequences you eat foods. And for instance, if you eat a big salad prior to eating a little piece of bread and some of the other things that are in your your meal, you're going to blunt insulin and glucose responses compared to if you start right off with, say, eating that piece of bread and 
taking a big drink of orange juice. Uh, that was one of the studies. They were just looking at different sequences. So, so we were seeing that in, in the animals we were studying, the sequences and complementarities amongst different foods were very important for them. And then I was, was seeing some of that in the, in the literature on human beings as well. And I got into that, of course, in nourishment as, as it went along. This concludes part one of our two-part conversation with Fred Prevenza, and you can look forward to the rest of this conversation in the next episode, where we're going to talk about what Hollands are and what we can learn from the perspective that our planet and all the life within it operate at different levels of consciousness and senses of whole, part, and self. How we can at the same time accept the fact that our Earth is constantly consuming herself and in transformation, while reclaiming our power to do what we can in our lifetimes to realize the world that we wish to live in, and more. As always, you can find the show notes to this episode at greendreamer.com. You can subscribe to my new podcast, The Kamea Shane Show, in whichever app you're using to tune into this one. We're also on the web at kameashane.com show. And you can also come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at kameashane. Thank you so much for joining us today and I will catch you soon in the next episode.